Let the beauty of Jesus be seen in me and in you. Really, that's a great call to what our message is about today in this What I Believe in Why series. Today, we ask the question, biblical morality, out of style? And my answer to that question may surprise you. Yes. Yes, it is out of style. Not in every case, not in every setting, but generally speaking, yes, biblical morality is out of style. And we'll come back to that before we close. But I want to begin today by saying I believe in biblical morality because the Bible does have a thing or two to say about morality. We can pretend that that's not the case and It seems like if we want to fit in with our culture, if we want to fit in with our society, then that would be a a good option, is to pretend that the Bible really doesn't say much about morality, or we could try to say, well, what the Bible does say about morality is really out of style. And so we don't have to follow it anymore. And yet we sing songs that are prayers such as purer in heart, O God, help me to be. Several of the scriptures that we'll have, uh, that we have on our outline today are speaking about uh, lists of good things or bad things that Jesus says come from the heart. And so we pray purer in heart, oh God, help me to be. And the reason why that is difficult is because there is sinfulness and there is evil in the world, just as our shepherd David Wicks reminded us of during our shepherd's prayer time. And we're concerned about our families, we're concerned about our land, we're concerned about our country, we're concerned about our church. Because evil is so powerful and so present. And it seems in many times so pervasive. Satan does his job well. But even if it is out of style, I believe in biblical morality. I believe that what the scripture has to say about how we should live our lives is significant. And that it's not just there to uh, make the Bible thicker. (laughs) It's actually there because this is how God wants us to live. This is how he wanted them to live in Old Testament times. This is how he wanted them to live in the time of Christ. This is how he wanted the New Testament church to live. And this is how he wants us to live today. These are the values that he wants us to have. And this is the lifestyle that he wants us to live. I believe in biblical morality because the Bible does have a thing or two to say about it. And so this morning I want us to consider that call to biblical morality. And whether you're here or whether you're watching online live or perhaps recorded through our live stream page or our Facebook pages, I hope that you'll be able to consider the things that we say today, 
that we base in the Ten Commandments, or at least six of the ten, that really feed back to the first commandment as well. And so I want us to say, first of all, that biblical morality is commanded. It's commanded. That's not a very popular word these days. We don't like commands. We don't like people telling us what to do. We certainly like to be able to make our own choices and decisions in life without feeling like someone else has told us this is how we're supposed to live or this is what we can or cannot do. And yet none of that kind of thinking is found in Scripture. Only from the words of the adversary, Satan, starting in the garden with Adam and Eve, No, you won't die. You'll just be like God. You'll be able to call your own shots. That's why you should eat of this fruit that he told you never to eat of. He continues on through the people of the Old Testament times. And and then when Jesus comes on the scene, he tempts Jesus specifically. But then he, he continues to tempt him throughout his life, even on the cross, still tempting him to move away from the will of God. And yet Jesus remained faithful. And we see that today. Biblical morality is commanded. And those commands are relevant today. And I want us to take a look at those. And I I want us to base again this message today on biblical morality from Six of the Ten Commandments. We find the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 and in Deuteronomy 5. And I love how Exodus 20 begins because it, it, it's, it, it's a powerful I am statement from God. He says, I am the God who delivered you. I'm not giving you these commandments so that you'll obey them so that I'll deliver you. They are based in the deliverance of God that has already taken place, even in the Old Testament, even in the law of Moses, that's the case. And so God says, I'm the one who delivered you. And the very first of the commands is, you shall have no other gods before me. I will be your only God. And the rest of them feed off of that. But as I've said before, it's always interesting to me to consider that there are more of the Ten Commandments that are geared for how we relate to one another than there are those with how we relate directly with God. Because the first four are really about being obedient to God and what that looks like in some specific ways. But then the last six are what it looks like to love your neighbor as yourself. To let the beauty of Jesus be seen in me for us, although, of course, not in Moses' day. Biblical morality is commanded, and and so as we consider that call to relate to each other in moral, ethical, obedient ways. I want us to consider those six commandments of the ten and how they apply to us today. 
If you consider, roughly speaking, Abraham living around 2000 B.C., Moses living around 1500 B.C., before the current era, today, now 2020, these commands were given 3,500 or so years ago and yet are still every bit as applicable today and still every bit of a struggle today. And I might also add, still every bit as unpopular today. One of the things I want us to consider and remember as we read through these and as we refer to a few scriptures is that these commands were just as difficult for the people of Moses' day, for the people of Jesus' day, as they are today. And the New Testament scriptures that we share today, those were just as difficult words to, for the first century church. As we read through these commands, we, we realize that biblical morality was no easier in the first century than it is today in the 21st century, although sometimes we feel like it is. We feel like it's easier for them than us. We feel like it's more difficult today because our world is harder than theirs. And yet we know when we think about that, that that's just not the case. That's just not the case. The early Christians would stand out in their culture if they lived like this because that's not how their culture lived. And the same is true today. If we live the way we're talking about today, imperfectly, I know, and so we still look to the blood of Jesus to cleanse us from all our sins, as David Hammond shared in his communion thoughts today from 1 John 1 verse 7. We, we rely on that. Without it, we have no hope. That being said, we still are called to live this way. And so we do everything we can to be faithful to that. And we will stand out. It will not be popular in our culture. And, it, and people will notice, there's, why do you live so differently? And we'll share next week that that is the moment when we can say it's because of Jesus. Biblical morality is commanded. So let's look briefly at these um, six commands. First of all, honor your parents. And I would add all who are older or in positions of authority. Exodus chapter 20 verse 12. Honor your father and your mother. In the New Testament, Paul would look back on that and he would say, look, this is, a, this, is, this is a commandment with promise. And there are several scriptures listed there, and I can tell you that there are several more that could be added, including the ones we looked at last week as we, talk about, as we talked about families from Ephesians 5 and 6. And I, and I want us to first of all give this disclaimer because unfortunately, we live in a society and in a community where I have to say this. This does not mean that you remain submissive in instances and situations when there is abuse. Unfortunately, evil parents would cause their children 
to suffer abuse and justify it because the Bible says you're to honor your mother and your father. And that is absolutely not true. A godly woman would be held hostage by a husband's cruelty because he would say, the scripture says you're to submit to your husband. That is not true. And so we offer that disclaimer. But generally speaking, Scripture calls us to honor our parents. And that's not just while we're in their home, but this is long after we're gone. To honor parents and grandparents. And again, I would add, to honor all who are older. To honor all who are in positions of authority and respect them. Later on, as we get close to the election the Sunday before, I'll share a little bit more about that. But there are scripture passages there that are listed. But one is Mark chapter 7, where Jesus talks about honoring your parents. And he's being questioned, and, and he tells them, look... You have tried to explain away the call and the command to honor your parents by saying, oh, I was going to take care of you financially, but that money I used for some other good cause, so I'm off the hook. And Jesus says, you are not off the hook. You are to remain faithful in honoring your parents. And all who are older or in positions of authority, it doesn't mean we always agree with them. It doesn't mean we don't have, um, let's see, invigorated discussion. And debate. But for the Christian, for the Christian, we are called to be people of honor and respect and consideration. Honor your parents. Secondly, uphold the sanctity of life. Thou shalt not murder. Exodus 20. Verse 13, this begins in Genesis 1 when humanity is created in the image of God. The psalmist writes in Psalm 139, from the womb, you knew me, you formed me, you knew all about me, you knew every step I would take, every breath I would have, every decision I would make. From the time I was in my mother's womb, you were with me. Jeremiah talks about being called from his mother's womb before he was ever born for the task that God had given him in Jeremiah 1. And these are, these are reminders of us today that to uphold the sanctity of life includes life in the womb. And though it may not be popular in certain circles of our culture and our society simply because we have decided to live selfishly rather than unselfishly and avoid the responsibility for our choices and our decisions. Still, Scripture calls us to uphold the sanctity of life. And in no clearer passage is that seen than in Luke chapter 1. In the interaction between Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, before those two boys were even born, they interacted with each other from their mother's womb. Elizabeth praising Mary and the child that was inside of her, saying that when the moment you spoke, 
the child within me leapt for joy upon hearing the sound of your voice. John himself, as the angel spoke to Zechariah in Luke 1, would be filled with the spirit from his mother's womb. An amazing, incredible statement. Abortion is um, a blight on our society, and it has caused us to devalue life overall. It is a sin that is certainly forgivable, as all sins are, if we would repent and turn to God. And God can use it for our good. But we must never be shy about upholding the sanctity of life, whether it's life in the womb, whether it's a life of a a disabled child or adult, whether it's life of an elderly person, whether it's life of someone that is, is just in our way. Thou shalt not murder. Jesus himself speaks about the the sanctity of life and speaks against the sin of murder in Matthew 15 and in John 8 and in other places in the New Testament we see that there. Uphold the sanctity of life. Number three is uphold the sanctity of sexuality and marriage. Exodus 20 verse 14, thou shalt not commit adultery. And one of the scripture passages that is there on your outline is Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, that says marriage is sacred, and we are to uphold the sanctity of marriage. And the sexual, physical relationship between a husband and wife is pure, in the words of Hebrews 13, 4, and we are to help it to remain pure. And sexual immorality is what defames those things causes them to be impure and takes away the sacred for the sake of the selfish. Lots of scripture passages there, including ones from Jesus in Matthew 5 and 19 and Matthew 15 and Mark 10, where Jesus speaks out about the sanctity of marriage and the sanctity of the physical sexual relationship. So far, going so far in Matthew 5 that he says it starts in the heart and it starts in the mind. Several of the passages of scripture on your uh, handout today include lists. Lists of sins. And we see that that include this sin. The sin of sexual immorality. Mark 7, Romans 1 speaks so much about it. Romans 13, tying it to love your neighbor as yourself. 1 Corinthians 5, speaking against sexual immorality in the church. Chapter 6, telling us to flee sexual immorality, that our bodies are not our own. It is filled with the, temple, with the Spirit of God and is His temple. Galatians 5, it's defined as works of the flesh and the others that are there. We are to uphold the sanctity of sexuality and marriage, even in the midst of a culture that doesn't seem to get that at all. A culture that says it does, marriage doesn't have to be between a man and a woman. It can be between two men or, or two women. And as I'll share a little bit later, a culture that will even say it can be more than two people. Yes, we 
we're Christians, however, we honor our parents. We uphold the sanctity of life, and we uphold the sanctity of sexuality and marriage. Number four, respect the belongings of others. Thou shalt not steal. (laughs) Exodus 20, verse 15. And scripture talks a lot about that as well. Let the one who steals, steal no longer, Paul writes. And it's included in those lists of sins in several places in scripture. And it's interesting that what, what God tells us is to work is to try to make a living so that you can provide for yourself without being dishonest and so that you can also have some to share with others who may be having a tough time themselves. We are to respect the belongings of others and to live in such a way that we are able to share what we have with those who are in need. One of the scripture passages not on there is Proverbs 30 that talks about uh, being asking God that he not make me too rich or too poor. Too rich, then I'll say, I don't need you, God. And too poor, I might be tempted to steal. We've talked at times about the how we're each tempted in different ways. And because of that, it doesn't justify the sin that we're tempted for. One of the one of the justifications for same-sex marriage and sexual activity, or for adultery, that hey, it's just how I'm wired. And you could say the same about stealing. It's just what I'm going through right now. It's just how I'm wired, and yet it's it's still wrong. It's still sin. All you're saying is you're especially tempted with that right now. And yet the command is still there. Thou shalt not steal. Respect the belongings of others. Number five, guard your speech. Exodus 20, verse 16. Don't bear false witness. Don't lie. Tell the truth. And let your speech be good. Not just truthful but good. Several passages of scripture there that speak about how we talk, how we speak. James, of course, is especially good about that. The end of Ephesians chapter 4, taking a a laser-like focus to what comes out of our mouths. And the things that make that significant, Jesus himself says, is this. What comes out of our mouths is a window into what is in our heart. And what we say and how we say that. And to whom we say those things. Speaks to what is in our hearts. The sin of lying, the sin of slander, the sin of gossip, those are all measured equally with the sin of murder and the sin of sexual immorality. God holds them in no higher place than he does the others. And Jesus says it reflects what's in our hearts. Let your speech be good. Let what comes out of your mouth be encouraging, be truthful. Be words that honor God. 
Number six is have the right priorities. Have the right priorities. Thou shalt not covet. Exodus 20, verse 17. What are the right priorities, Bill? Well, <clears throat> let me give you a, a three that have a lot of in, in each of them. But number one is God. Number two is people. Number three is everything else. Everything else. Because Jesus said we're to love God first of all, and the second great commandment to love our neighbor as ourselves. And time and again throughout the Gospels, Jesus confronted the sin of materialism, the sin of covetousness. And it's one of those sins that we don't like to talk about because it's one of those sins that we especially struggle with. Even the poorest among us are wealthier than the vast majority of the world. Have the right priorities. Jesus says to seek first the kingdom of God and all of these things that you need, that you want. The ones you need will be given to you and it may look different than what you think because God will be the one who controls that. Matthew 6. Luke 12 are some stories about contentment versus materialism, including that man who had so much that it wouldn't fit in his barn, so he said, well, instead of helping others with some of it, I'll build bigger barns. And Jesus said, you fool, your soul is required of you today, and all your stuff and all your barns won't help you today. We think of the great passages such as 1 Corinthians 5 and 1 Timothy 6 and Romans 13 that we've mentioned that bring those lists of sins together and covetousness is condemned. Materialism is condemned. How, how do you keep from doing that? Well, there's a great passage of scripture on your outline in 1 Timothy chapter 6 where Paul writes to Timothy and he tells him, look, command those who are rich in this present, present world not to put their hope and their faith in their wealth, but rather to put their hope and their faith in the provider of that wealth, God himself. How do I know if I'm doing that well or not, Bill? Well, how tightly do you hold on to those things? Paul tells Timothy, encourage them to be good givers to give of their means, to provide for others. Because that is a great way of acknowledging I'm not all about my stuff. I'm willing to part with it according to God's will. Over these last several months, it's been a difficult, trying time for a lot of our families and our church and our nation. And we get that. And so there are some that have had to suspend their giving, and our shepherds are wonderful about saying, if that's the case, then, then do that. If, if you need the church to help, then call us and let us help. It's, it's why we're here. It's what Scripture talks about from the earliest days of the church in Acts 2 and in Acts 4. People giving so that others in need can be provided for. But it's more than just providing for others. It's also a sign that says, my heart is given over to God, not to stuff, not to things, not to money. And so if you've been in a position where you can 
give more than great, do that. If you're in a situation where you need some help, great, let us know. Some say, Bill, I haven't been to church in months. That's okay. I hope you're giving online. We have all kinds of opportunities for that, as you know. And many of you are taking advantage of that. I haven't forgotten to bring a check in the last several months, and there's a reason for that. It comes out automatically now. We didn't do that before, but in the days of the coronavirus, we started doing that. And I encourage you to do that as well, or to mail it in, or to click on the little link that says give on our website, westerwin.com work of the Lord continues in and from this place. And thankfully, we've had so many who have continued to give of their financial means, but also of themselves first. What a blessing you are. Well, what about those points of biblical morality? They all come from Scripture. By its very definition, biblical morality is based on the Bible. And so here's a question. If you reject the Bible teaching on morality, where do you turn? Where do you turn? How do you decide? What's ethically right or wrong? Is it survival of the fittest? Is it whoever has the power calls the shots? That right or wrong is determined by those in power? Those who have authority to punish those who disobey the laws that they put out? Is that where you turn? Do you turn to whatever the current culture says is morally acceptable? Is that that where we turn? Because everything in the Bible is relative, so really that's not the first place we go to. The first place we go to is what does our society say about what's right or wrong? And perhaps it's about a specific question or just more generally. In our Family Life Center class, we've been discussing this over the last month or two. And and there's a quote from a group that studies this and is seeking to share the biblical view of morality. And they have this quote, the sex-positive movement is said to start with, quote, tossing out the perceptions of what is and is not sexually normal, and begins with a non-judgmental receptivity of the sexual styles and interpretations, or lack thereof, that feel genuine to each individual. And so you see where that's going. Throw out the perceptions that we've always had, that we've always tried to share, imperfectly, yes, living by imperfectly, but that's been the basis. And go to a non-judgmental receptivity of whatever feels genuine to each individual. Every individual gets to decide based on what they like and what they want. 
Sex is seen as a part of the human experience that should be void of any externally imposed borders or boundaries. And right now, I'm not even talking about the laws of the land. Right now, I'm talking about the sense of our culture. Just saying what is right and what is wrong. Because in our culture today, the bottom line, the deciding factor is what I like and what I want. The sex-positive movement holds personal pleasure and the right to that pleasure in the highest value. Morals and ethics are absent, with the exception of mutual consent. All choices are a matter of individual personal preference. So if, if both consent and are adults, then it's okay. Or even if they're not adults, our society is going the direction that says it's okay. So much so that some would say that a, a child can decide if they're male or female. And if this is all true, then, of course, homosexual relationships and marriage are not wrong, not just not illegal, that's a different question, but not wrong. And if you can't condemn that, then how can you condemn multiple partners in marriages, or what is called polyamory, where you have a domestic partnership or relationship or marriage, not just between two individuals, but a group of individuals? You say, Bill, that'll never happen. That is already happening. In Somerville, Massachusetts, this past summer in July, there was an ordinance approved that said that domestic partnerships can be granted to groups of individuals if they are willing to make that commitment. That they will be monogamous within the individuals in that group. And so you can have three or four or five or however many people who say, I'm going to be faithful to this marriage within these five people. And you say, well, that's not right, Bill. I'm one who, you may say, I'm one who uh, is okay with same-sex marriage, but I'm not okay with that. Well, why not? Why not? Because once you take this out... Once you take this out, that's where you go. Because they're also consenting adults. They're also saying we are in this mutually. We are committed. We will be safe. We will not try to hurt each other. If you reject the biblical teaching on morality, where do you turn? Where where do you go? To define your ethics. To say, here's what's right and here's what's wrong. Again, the legal questions are all, that's a whole different animal. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking just about the ethics of it all. What actually is the right and the wrong? Because I 
firm believer that the law of the land is not going to be completely equal to the law of God. <laughs> and I, you know, I, I understand that. I appreciate when our laws and our leaders, as we have prayed today, are consistent with the teaching of Scripture. But I also know that the, the social and civil law is not going to be the one that is able to tell us and force us to live faithfully to God. That comes from within us. And it also is willing to make that commitment even in the face of laws of the land that run counter to that. Because that was the world of the New Testament. That was the first century. For them to live the way we've described today put them at odds with their culture. And because of that, they were beaten, they were imprisoned, they were made sport of, they were tortured, and they were put to death. But they held on to the values of God. Not because they were popular, but because they were right. As we begin to close today, I want us to be sure and make this statement. Because this is the gospel. Immorality can be forgiven. Immorality can be forgiven. Biblical morality is, I believe, commanded. And I believe it is sinful to not hold on to that and be faithful to that. But I'm also here to say immorality can be forgiven. And so the one scripture I do want us to turn to and read today is 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verses 9 through 11. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greeny, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Those are thou shalt nots, and every single one of them is just as significant to God as the next one and the previous one. And God says, you cannot live this way and do these things and go to heaven. You can't. But then there's verse 11. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You read that list and all the other lists in Scripture of sinfulness. And, and Paul would say, you there in Corinth, in the church, you all have that in your background. Some of you struggle with it still today. And I'm here to tell you that at West Irwin Church of Christ in Tyler, Texas in 2020, we have all of those things here in our church too. And we struggle with those things. Because to be a Christian doesn't mean that you don't suffer temptation, nor does it mean you don't sin. It simply means that you have been washed. You have been justified. You have been sanctified, set apart to live according to the values and the morals and the ethics of God. And even though we fall and even though we struggle, we are washed in the blood of the Lamb. We are forgiven. 
and we are set apart to do share all of the successes and all of the failures in our lives with others so that they can experience the same salvation. Bring Christ your broken life. So marred by sin, he will create anew whatever it is that you still struggle with. He will create anew and make whole again. Biblical morality may be out of style. The answer to the question we started with, is biblical morality out of style? The answer is yes. (laughs) Yes, it is. Biblical morality may be out of style, but it will never be out of date. May not be popular. But whatever the time, whatever the country, whatever the society, it will always be right. It will always be God's will. I believe in biblical morality, and I believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Today, if you need that saving grace, come as we stand, sing our song together. Bring Christ your